You are listening to Hands at Work Audio. In this podcast, we hear George Snowman speaking to Emmanuel Baptist Church, recorded in May 2012. Thank you very much for that introduction, and thank you very much for everybody just here tonight. I, uh, I hope you can hear me and hear my voice and um, understand my accent. You said it is. I don't think I've got one. I think you've got one. But um, it's such a great joy for me to be here today. A great privilege. And um, as, I, as we sang this marvelous song, and I watched the photos of the children that I know by name, I... I know that we serve a mighty, mighty, wonderful, powerful God. But it's a very mystical God, isn't it? He, 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 his ways are so different from our ways. And tonight, as you, you hear me speak to you, certainly I do not speak to you as somebody that um, stands here because I'm qualified. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. If you understand our history of our nation, then you would understand that I should never be standing here. I am from South Africa, and I'm from the tribe that, that um, were the architects for apartheid. And I ate from the fruit of apartheid. I was born of a silver spoon, and I had access to many, many things I should maybe never have had access to because of the color of my skin. And it opened many doors for me. I never harmed anybody. I was never a racist. I never did anything wrong. I was never violent. Um, I just wanted to live my own life. And then Christ, in a marvelous way, burst into my life. Unexpectedly, um, I cannot even claim that I was seeking him when he did it. And that was the beginning of a journey. And when I look back today at that journey, I'm astounded by it. Because I can see that God in His wisdom decided to choose me as, as something that represents exactly the opposite of a person that should be doing this work. And it was a long journey for us. And I had to go through many, many challenges. Uh, God has stretched me in many, many ways as he exposed to me and showed me our nature as human beings and, and how we take our culture and then we take God's word and we put God's word under our culture and we interpret God's word according to the values that we were taught when we were younger. And true liberation only comes when you are set free from that cultural hindrances that's forbidding you or, or preventing you to understand the deep secrets of God's Word. And so when I was 19 years old, I was um, in Angola in armed conflict with Cuba and uh, Zavimbi, which was a, a, a rebel force in Angola and the South African government. And um, I was very happy to die in Angola because I was brought up that that would be a wonderful way to die as a young man, to protect your country and your nation against the communist, the red bear, 
And, and so I remember that many of my friends died on my side. I was actually wounded at that time. And um, I would look at my friends dying and I would think, what a wonderful way to die. What an honor that your family can say that you shed your blood for your nation. You know, many years later, after I've carried that burden, that stone around my neck from being an Afrikaner, once I discovered what the truth was, once I saw what actually happened, and I thought, God, I'm ashamed. Where do I come from? What am I part of? It was only when God showed me that there's no difference between the Afrikaner white tribe and many of us living in the United States of America and in England and in France and Australia. And in our hearts, we are exactly the same. But it's only when God gives us something to break through, if we understand His love, that He can take us to a place where He can use us in spite of our background. And so I want to just quickly tell you what happened to me before we go more into the orphan crisis in hands. So yeah, I was in Angola at the age of 19 and um, part of a, a mighty f- armed force sweeping through the villages, um, fighting for what we believe we're right. At that time, thousands of families became refugees. They had to flee out in front of the, the armies invading Angola. And there was one family called the Chipei family. The mother was pregnant and the father, who had a very good qualification and job, had to leave his papers and everything and they had to run at night and they crossed the Namibian border and they fled for 350 kilometers to try and get away from the conflict. And his son was born in Namibia and he grew up to be a very talented young man to the extent that when he was 19, he got a full bursary to go and study at one of the best universities in South Africa, to go and study to become a lawyer. And that young man met my daughter. And the oppressor and the oppressed both found Christ after the war. And their children coming from completely I cannot imagine that you can understand the different places where they grew up from one place where the family had to fight to, to overcome resentment and anger for what was done to them but the father chose to bring his son up in a godly way and me in this side of the spectrum where I was saved by incredible grace of God and I made a vow before God that my children will not grow up by the values that I grew up. And in the next generation, God brought these two children together at university. Today, they are married and they're having a huge impact. When I was in Namibia last year, I watched my son-in-law speaking to thousands of students. And I sat there among the audience and I just wept and wept as I saw this young man. My previous enemy whose son is now my son-in-law. That's how God works, you know. 
when we allow God to do that, my daughter Nikiwe, we adopted her when we found her in a village. She was busy dying. And I do not have too much time tonight to share with you what happened, but we took her into our house so she could die in our house because the doctors told us that she was going to die. And she refused to die. She was laughed out of her deathbed. And the pediatrician officially told us when he gave her a complete clean bill of health, he said, I cannot charge you one cent because this child was not healed by my medicine. This child was healed by love. And that child is my daughter today. She's 11 years old. We got her when she was 11 months. But you know, to this day, when I walk in the streets of South Africa with my <laughs> United Nations family, <laughs> even after 18 years of democracy, we still carry the brunt of remarks and comments. But I've taught my children to lift their chins up high because they represent our Father. Our Father that challenged our culture, that put us in boxes and tell us that we are better and that there's a us and them because it's not true. There's a us. And you are part of a beautiful body body of Christ that is crying out that we will bring reconciliation to the world. I met Lucky when he was seven years old. I went into a village called Manzini and I was walking in the dusty roads of Manzini. It was stinking hot that day. And I saw a grandmother sitting under a fruit tree and the local Christians that I walked with said to me, that woman has buried all her children. And I said, let's go and encourage her. And I found Lucky's grandmother sitting under a mango tree. And I sat next to her and we started talking. And I noticed this little boy. He sat uh, about 10 meters away from us. And he was in obvious pain. He was only about this high, although he was seven years old. An African boy, but his skin was as white as mine because his immune system was completely depleted. His hair was straight. I called him. I said, come here. And he came to me, walking slowly. And he just held onto my leg as I started speaking to his grandmother. And I put my arm around his shoulders. And that was the beginning of a relationship between me and Lucky. He was everything but lucky. Lucky. His biggest dream was to go to school. He was seven years old. The teacher told Lucky, there's no place for you in a class because you are going to die anyway. And we can't waste a desk on you. The community, when they saw my relationship with Lucky, they immediately started the gossip that I was actually his father. And that's why he's so white. <laughs> well, it was okay with me and my wife. We had no problem with that. But I would go and fetch Lucky every morning with my pickup truck. I was driving around in Manzini that days. We were trying to start to mobilize the church. 
and Lucky would wait for me outside the, the gatepost where his mother, grandmother would stay with a whole horde of orphans in there. Some days Lucky would be so weak that he wouldn't stand, he would sit. Just like this, cramps in his tummy as his body was slowly decaying away. And I will get out of the pickup and I will walk to Lucky. And I'll say to him, Lucky, you want to stay at home tonight. Today, Lucky just shook his head. Doesn't matter how sick he was, he wanted to be with me. And I'll pick Lucky up and I'll carry him and, and put him next to me in a pickup. And that made his day. Wherever I went, Lucky was with me. Many times he would just be lying like a baby on my lap. Lucky moved into my house towards the end of his life. He stayed with my family in our house. At night he would sleep next to my bed on a mattress. Every time I put my hand out because I could hear him groan, I put my hand out to touch him. Every time. Electric shock ran from my arm. Every time. I never told anybody, not even my wife, because I would lay there at night and I would think, I get a shock because I know this boy is slipping away. Well, Lucky died as if he planned it. He died exactly three years to the day after his mother. And when we had his funeral in that community, I had to do the whole funeral because after all I was his father. And we had hundreds of people there. And my daughter, who just became a teenager then, wrote a poem which she wanted to read at Lucky's funeral. And I heard the poem for the first time there at the funeral. And she spoke about Lucky, how he would enjoy eating with us. And he will do everything that I do. So you know when my one daughter don't finish her plate of food, of course it will come to me. And then I will finish it. And then Lucky will watch it. And then he will take my other daughter's plate of food and he will also finish it. <laughs> but then my daughter wrote this. She said, Lucky, we'll miss you. When we think of you, you are like an electric shock running through my arm. You see, the truth is that my family was lucky to have had that boy in our house. With the pain, with the suffering that he brought, my son was only about four years old. He brought Christ into my house. In some mystical way, he brought Jesus and he showed us Jesus. We think we are rich, but we are poor. We are poor in so many ways. Christ is looking for us. Of course, the biggest gift that God could ever give us is grace. God gave us grace. And if we do not understand this, how can we ever, ever represent the heart of our Father if the core of His heart is grace? For us to understand grace is to understand 
that like Lucky, each one of us were adopted. God the Father adopted us. You see, it took me a while to understand that there was a community called the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They were perfectly happy. They were content. They did well. They needed nobody else. But they saw someone outside the community who was suffering and they had no hope. And they decided to open up the community on behalf of those people that were suffering out there. You know who those people were? Of course, it was you and me. And in fact, that community decided that the son should be sacrificed. The community decided that the son should be sacrificed so that others outside the community could be brought into the community. That's the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God is love. And a hallmark of love is that it's outward looking and it always gives. Always gives. Of course, the Trinity decided to give. And Jesus gave. So somebody paid for you. A bill that you could not pick up. Somebody paid. And if we understand that, then what we see is happening will not be, oh, are you one of those people that have got compassion? Are you like Mother Teresa? No. Each and every one of us will understand because it will be in us. It will be part of our DNA when we became born again. Jesus said, I will not leave you behind as orphans. He said it to you and me. He said, I will not. I'll make a plan. I will not leave you behind. It was another hot day in Masoy, a community where I worked in. It was a steep hill that I had to walk up. Right on top of the hill there was a water point. You know the people in those communities don't have water. They walk many, many kilometers just to find water. And as I walked up that hill, I met Josephine. Josephine was a young lady in her mid-twenties. She only bone and skin. Obviously, Josephine was busy dying. And on her back, she had a baby. And that baby was screaming. I could hear the baby while I was a few hundred meters away from her. And I watched Josephine as she tried to pick up a 15 liter. I don't know how many gallons that is. I mean, it's really time for you guys to join the proper system. <laughs> anyway. The rest of the world is there. You know? But... Josephine was trying to pick up the water and she was coughing like somebody with bad TB. And she couldn't pick up that water. It was too heavy for her. And the baby was screaming in the heat of the day. And this white Afrikaner, isn't that fantastic? <laughs> I love God, you know. Jesus turns us upside down. If he's in you, you'll be very different. And there I walk up and I say to her, ma'am, can 
she looked at me with suspicion because after all I was a white Africana I said can I carry your water for you Josephine had no choice that day because she couldn't carry that water and I picked up that water and I started carrying it for her and I went with her to her hut and that was the beginning of my relationship with Josephine a child, a girl her name was Nonklankla funny enough it also meant lucky And I met Josephine and Lucky, non-clankla. And I would go there, every opportunity I could find. Because when I went there the first time, I put the water in a shack. She had two other boys that were in school. There was not a crumb of food in that shack. It was corrugated iron in the heat of the African sun. She sat there, sweat running down her face. I look at it, she just had water. Yet nothing else. And a baby screaming. She was dying. And all she could tell me was how great God was. I was angry with her. I wanted to say to her, how can you say God is great? I mean, haven't you taken stock lately? You've got water here. You know, I would go to Josephine whenever I had food or anything. I would look for excuses to go to Josephine's hut. And to go and take it to her. Not just because I wanted to help her. But because I found Jesus there. Jesus was there meeting me every time. And Josephine, every time I would go there. The peace and the joy that would come out of her. And then one day I walked in the community. And somebody shouted to me. They called me Sipo. And somebody shouted said, Sipo, did you hear? Josephine died last night. It was like somebody hit me with a baseball bat. For weeks I couldn't get over it. I couldn't believe it. Even though I knew she was going to die. I could not handle it. But we had to fight for Nonklankla. Nonklankla was busy dying. It was clear that she was going to die. Every week we would go there. And Carolyn, my wife, would take her to the clinic. And we'll stand in this long line. You know when you are poor. Man, it's tough. It's tough. And my wife will stand with this baby in the sun in this long line, hoping that today they can get to the front where a nurse can just give him something. We took Nontlantla and she stayed with her grandmother. Her grandmother already had, I don't know how many orphans with her. And slowly, slowly, Nontlantla would get a little bit better. But they were fighting for her life. I remember the first Christmas after her mother died. I got up early in the Christmas morning. We were going to go to church and enjoy it as a family. And I thought about Nontlantla. And I thought, I wonder what's happening to Nontlantla today. And I jumped in my car. I said to my family, I'll be back for church. And I went to Nontlantla's house. And I went to the granny where she stayed. And I walked into the house. And there they sat. The grandmother and all the orphans and had this huge coal stove. You guys know that big black coal stoves? And they, they had the simplest, simplest biscuits you can imagine that they were baking in the fire. You know, I've been to some fancy places on Christmas. I've never treasured Christmas as I did that. I sat with the orphans and the grandmother 
and we watch this stupid little biscuits coming out of the fire. And it just smiles. In the simplicity, the poverty, I found Jesus. That morning I celebrated his birth. But you know, I became busy, busy, more orphans, more work. And I started seeing no clunkle less and less because the work was growing. And then the next Christmas we had this we we had this Christmas parties for the orphans. Now December is summer in, in Africa, huge thunderstorms and lightning and, and we had this huge Christmas party. Hundreds of kids there. Which is all we could do. We could paint their faces and give each one a a sucker or something like that. And for them it was just out of this world. And late that afternoon, the thunder came and the lightning, and I was in my pickup. You know, in Africa, we, we don't do what you guys do. We wear safety belt. That, that's, I mean, we, my pickup is just a normal pickup, and I had like 10 kids next to me, and four on my lap, and one sitting on my shoulder, and on the ground road, the dirt road down the road, you know, and here we're driving, and I'm taking every child home. I think if a cop she had to see me, he wouldn't even stop me. He, they'll just die of a heart attack right there. It's, but it's working for us. So there I'm driving. And it's thunder. And one of the, the local Christians is sitting next to me. And, I, and I, there was a child sitting close to me. And this Christian local lady that looks after orphans, she said to me, Sipo, do you know who's sitting next to you? I still thought, she, man. Her name is Mamachi. I said, Mamachi, what do you mean? Now, I can hardly turn my head because there's a child here. And, and she looked down at this child sitting next to me. And at that moment, I looked down. And here was this beautiful, beautiful girl. Hand on my leg. And she looked up. And she had this incredible Colgate smile. I said, who are you? And she said, I'm not Tlantla. Isn't it amazing? You know, Lucky died, but not Tlantla stayed alive. Lucky died, but not before he experienced the love of God. Nontlantla survived. And everybody in that village that knows Nontlantla knows it's a miracle. And they know that God is alive. They say Nontlantla would, at the end of the day, there's a big rock outside their hut. And she will go and sit on a rock. And then she looks down and the tar road is there at the bottom. And she will watch the tar road, five o'clock, till she see my pickup. And then she will shout, there goes my father. <laughs> what a beautiful way to display the love of our father. It's not justice. It's not Mother Teresa. It's just you and me displaying the heart of our father to the world that's dying outside. You know, Jesus took much time to speak about loving your neighbor. 
he thought very carefully about it. And when he, when he spoke and he told us the story of the Good Samaritan, oh man, did he offend people. When he chose a Samaritan, looking after a Jew, when Jesus told that great story, he made it very clear to us that your neighbor is anybody in need. Everybody is not your brother and your sister in the faith. But everybody's suffering is your neighbor. And Jesus, through that parable, made it very clear to us that race and culture and gender have got no place when it comes to your neighbor. Because you see, people were created in the image of God. Each one of us. Mysterious sin. And sometimes, sometimes through the brokenness of the world, we are degraded into animals, into people that's got no hope. We are degraded down there in the slums. And when the rest of us then make a choice to reach out and to pull them back to where God wants us to be. Because God wants every child to be known by name, to be fit, to be safe and secure, to be loved and to know the beauty of Jesus. And when that's not happening, nothing is good enough for us to stop. We need to reach out and pull them back to where our Father wants. Africa is a killing field for Satan. He's killing our children by the thousands. Today, 26,000 children die. You know, I stood in Malawi in a slum area. I once stood in a village. I met three boys who just buried the last parent. The eldest boy was 15. And it just happened that as I went into the hut, they came from the graveyard. And they stood in that graveyard, and as an adult, I stood next to them. And I experienced, for a moment, I experienced that devastation that those children have, realizing that tomorrow morning, they're going to wake up, and they will not be an adult. You know, as a grown-up man, that day, as I stood there, I could feel my throat closing with panic as I thought how they should feel that day. Jesus spoke about the most vulnerable, constantly telling us, the Word of God is full of it. How can we miss it? How can we miss it unless we choose to miss it? You know, David, the man after God's own heart, who knew our Father very well, he described him in Psalm 68 verse 5. How did he describe this God that he knew so well? He said, a father to the fatherless and a husband to the widow. And then he goes further to, to maybe pound like this. He said, he's God in his holy habitation. He's the father of the fatherless. And a husband to the widow. I sat in Heathrow Airport two years ago, waiting for a connecting flight. And I picked up a newspaper on a Saturday morning. 
And on page five, I saw that photo. I burst out in tears. You know, I don't know if I wept more for those children or if I wept more for the rich people that were walking in that airport on their way to all their businesses, doing their things. And I looked at that. And I said, God, how can it be true? How can it be? How can it be that a photo like that get to page five? The journalist just wrote a little paragraph underneath that. That was done in a city of Goma, in East Congo. A place where 800,000 people got killed in four weeks. It hardly got to your newspapers. And this journalist went into Goma, where the rebels swept through the villages. And he found those two girls. And he said they were just walking in the streets. They lost all their family. You know, I took that photo home to Nikiwe, my daughter. And I said to her, Nikki, look at this. What do you think about that? And Nikki said to me, go and fetch them. Go and fetch them. I thought, sure, I don't know about that. I mean, there's war. I didn't expected to say to me to go there. I thought she'll say, let's pray about it. But she said to me, go there. I want you to go. Well, I prayed. I said, God, if you want me to go, I'll go. But you're going to have to provide for me. Oh, that was dangerous. Because you know what happened. God, I mean, somebody came to me and said, tell me about Goma. I told him, he said, I want you to go. And the door opened and I went. I went to a village called Luhonga. And I want to tell you about the grandmother because God is the husband of the widow, not just the orphan. I met a grandmother there. That's a grandmother. She lived in a shack that's made out of plastic. It's about this high and it's about a meter and a half wide. It's a hole where a dog will sleep in. That woman lost her whole family in a war. There's nobody left. Can you imagine that the day I got there was the day she was chased off the piece of land where she planted her food. They chased her away. And there she sat. She lost everyone. She had nowhere to plant food. And she just wanted to die. It was the very day I, George, a white Afrikaner, walked into a village in a war-torn city in the Congo. Coincidental. And I look at this, and I had a few co-workers from Congo there with me, and I, and I spoke to the chief of the village. I said, what are we going to do? He said, there's no place. We can't plant anywhere. There's no so, um, land left for her. I said, we can't just leave her like that. We've got to do something. And I started putting pressure on the chief. He said, okay, I'll give you a piece of land. It was about 10 meters by 5 meters. I said to the co-workers, were they with me? Tell the people we're looking for hose. They're looking at me like I'm crazy. And so they spoke and here they brought us hose. In the heat of the Congo, 
jedes Weite, er war kongelief, er stand tot in der Grund. Und ein halbes Village kam, er stand rund uns, und sie lachten. Sie lachten uns. Sie sagten, was ist wrong with these people? Are they crazy? But you know, when they saw the determination, and we carried on, after about 40 minutes, a, a woman came with her hoe, and she joined us. And two young men came, and they joined us. And people came, and we started. And we started. Because you see, that day, beautiful feet walked into that village. Not money, not clever people, beautiful feet. Behind us, you can see that field. We, we planted all... That day, she had to pull everything out of the land and she carried it to her house. That very same day, I got there and I planted it for her again. In her own land. And when we were finished, the whole village was standing around us. And they looked at me like, okay, so what are you going to do now? And it was dead quiet. Even the children were quiet. And I said to them, I want to tell you about my king. You see, when we become beautiful feet, God opened up the way for us, even the hearts of people, to receive Jesus. Because I can see we love. And then the whole village stand, and I shared the love of Christ to them. And when we were finished, The granny came with a bowl of water and she had a little piece of soap like that. And I washed my hands and I used the soap. So what? You know, that's nice. I greeted the granny and I walked away. And one of the ladies in the village came running after me. She said to me, Do you know what just happened? I said, No. What happened? She said, That granny spoke to the people now and she said I have never seen anything like this and she went into her hole where she lives and she took her most valuable position which is a piece of soap and she came and she brought it to me and she said wash your hands with my soap you know they told me that that granny would only use that soap on a Sunday morning Because it's the only time she can use it. Because she's got to look after it. That's all she had. That was her most valued possession. A piece of soap. That day, Christ burst into that village. The people told us later that that village forgot how to love. They forgot what it means to love because they've experienced so much pain. Each one of us have got a fingerprint. Each one of us have been set apart to bring hope, to bring love, not just in Africa, but wherever we are. God has given that disability, but we're going to have to be stretched. We're going to have to do it. I love it when my wife worked with me in a community. Amazing things happen when that happens. 
like one day we found an old granny, her name is Nomsa. She was in her 80s. We found her bedridden in a one-room shack where she was lying. The smell was so bad that we couldn't go in. Nobody looked after her. It was my wife, a lady from the village and myself. We carried her and put her outside under a tree. I had the easy job. I washed the curtains. After the fifth time of washing her, the curtains still smelled like urine. We washed it. We washed everything. I sat next to her that day and I said to her, Numsa, can I pray for you? And she said, no. I said, why not? She said, I want God to kill me. I want to die. Every Tuesday morning, for months after that, me and Karen will go to a house and we'll go and wash her, serve her, and slowly she would start allowing me to pray for her. She actually liked me a bit. She would normally say to me, when me and my wife go there, she would say to me, why is that woman coming here? It's very funny. But you know, it is amazing what happened. Because the guy was blind, James. James who lived a few houses from there. He heard about it and he would start coming there on Tuesday. And another person, and the next thing, when I went there, people would say to me, we want Holy Communion. Can you preach to us? And I said, but I'm not a pastor. He said, no, but we want I planted a church there without trying to plant a church. I just brought the love of Jesus. There was a church when we were finished. One day I asked Numsa, Numsa, what's your biggest dream? You know what she said to me? She said, I want to ride in a car. You know, Numsa would get a pension of less than a hundred dollars. And the neighbor's boy would come with a wheelbarrow because he couldn't walk. She was crippled. And the boy will push her in a wheelbarrow to the pension point. And he will take half a pension to do that. And so I said to Anunsa, next pension day, I'm coming to fetch you for a car. It's you and me. You better dress up. Well, I tell you, Numsa was dressed from the head to the toe. I got there. I picked Numsa up. I carried her to the car. And we were off to the pension point. I took the shortcut. But halfway, I just realized, no, she had other ideas here. We had to drive through the whole village. Everybody saw us. A window was open. It was like the queen. She would, you know, she would wave at everybody. I would see some of her friends, and I would stop to get them to get in. And she goes, no. <laughs> it was just me and Nunsa. It took us hours to get to the pension point. It was only half a mile away. It was Nunsa's day. And the whole village knew that. It's incredible. Our God works in simple ways. To reach the hearts. Let me tell you what happened. I got to the pension point. And now, you know, I'm business. I've got to finish my work. And I wanted to get out and get a pension. I've done my good work now. I forgot she was crippled. I had to get out. And I had to pick her up. And I had to go and stand in a line with literally thousands of other people. And I had to stand there. Not what? A white Afrikaner. Nobody's ever seen such a thing. Stand there for hours. Holding my granny. Carrying her to the front. 
Six months later, a village about five miles from there, there was a man dying. And people said to me, you can't go there. That man hates white people. And he will shoot you. He's got a gun. Well, you know, I'm not a brave person. But one day, I just went in his house. And his mother saw me. Her eyes just went this big. She was like, are you stupid? I said to her, I'm here to see Elke. His name is Elke. And she got out of the way. And there was Elke lying in his bed, busy dying. And I looked at him and felt to me like he was staring at me for eternity. And he said to me, You are most welcome in my house. You know, I led him to Christ. I washed him. I looked after him. I buried him. But one day I asked him, I said, Elke, people told me that you would have shot me. And then when I came in, you said, you are so welcome. He said, I would have shot you. But I was at a pension point one day to steal from grandmothers when they get their pension. And I saw this white man standing with a woman in his arms. And he said this, He said, all my hate in my heart disappeared. God doesn't need your few dollars or whatever. He owns all the cattle in a thousand hills. He wants you to do this. The orphan, the widow, those who are suffering, those lonely people in your neighborhood, those people, he wants you to get involved because he knows you will find Jesus there. He knows that if you don't do it for long enough, you become self-centered. It's about you and your bank account and your what, what, you, you lose complete perspective. God wants you to give not because he needs, he's not in overdraft. He's not part of your recession. He wants you to give because He wants you to grow and survive. He wants to rip you out of the thing that's killing you. And He wants to bring hope to you. But it can only happen when you take that step. So every time I had to walk into the townships in the beginning, fear would grip me. But as I did it, I found Christ in that. Our Father wants to show His heart to each one of us. I am excited that the team is going to Africa and that there's another team going to Jamaica. I love it. It's not good for Jamaica and Africa. It's good for you. It will bring life to you. Because you are also dying. You're dying. Just like we are dying. You're dying spiritually. I've read some things up about your country. Which by the way is is, is a great nation. With everything, you are a great nation. Because you come from a solid foundation. But it's time for somebody to get that backbone again that your forefathers had. To be godly and to fight 
one of the best ways you can fight for your children is to get them to see the real thing. Somebody asked me recently, when is the right time for me to take my child to a slum? I said, well, about the same age when you take him to a shopping mall. Because if you take your child to a shopping mall and he doesn't know that there's a slum, a rubbish dump, the children are dying, then you are lying to your child. You bring him up, messed up. You mess his head up. He thinks everything is like that. It's good. God say, your children are arrows in your quiver. You've got to send your children out. They've got to go and experience life. And they'll come back and they'll be mature, strong, well-balanced, spirit-filled Christians. It's when a church or a community or a family become inward-looking that they lose that. And the worldly things struggle. The worries of the world choke them. I'm so excited that you are doing this. I want to encourage you. My stories is just, it's just my stories. But there are hundreds of stories like that. And I want each one of you to have stories like that. All of us are allowed to have one false doctrine, is it? Is that okay? Well, I've got this crazy thing, okay? I believe one day, when Jesus comes, He's going to switch the lights off. <laughs> and He's going to put on like this ultraviolet light. And then He's going to say, Jed, I'm putting that light on now. Let's have a look. Where did you put your fingerprints? So if that day comes tomorrow, where will your fingerprints be found? You know, I love Christ. I love Him with all of my heart. I really, really believe He's coming back. I really believe it. I mean, seriously, I believe it. I believe that this world is not for me. I don't, I, as much as it's trying to attract me, I push it away. Because I want to be like a woman that keeps herself pure for the coming king. We've got to choose. Where do we put our fingerprints? You've got a few years put your fingerprints in a place that will bring glory to your God. So, when we look at this AIDS pandemic, 20 million children without parents, today, today, 6,000 children buried their last parent in Africa alone. 6,000 children going to their houses tonight, not, not knowing what's going to happen when they get up tomorrow morning. Now, you can't solve that. I can't solve that. I'm telling you one thing I'm going to try. I'm going to draw a line. I'm going to fight. And I tell you, Satan must walk over me. Because my father's heart is pumping in my ribcage. I'm part of my dad's business. My dad is in the business of adoption. My dad is in the business of ripping people out and saving them. And he's saying to us, we can do the same. My mind, my time, my energy, everything that we have, I want to spend on my dad's business. I 
dream of a hundred thousand children. I want us to know their names. Lucky, non clankla. We can spend a lot of time telling names. When you go to Africa, I want you to know their names. When you go to Jamaica, I want you to know their names. I want you to know the names of the children in your neighborhood. I want you to know. I'm closing with this. I want you to know that compassion is not for Mother Teresa. I can prove that to you in the Bible. Okay? I can really, we can go into that if you want to. I can guarantee you, I'll prove to you that compassion is a hallmark of your salvation. If you do not have compassion, I question your salvation. I'm serious. I question it. You've got to ask yourself, I don't know you, you don't know me. But if you walk past on the other side of the road, if you allow yourself to get away with excuses, you've got to take it very serious. Because if you understand salvation, you understand the price that was paid for you, you understand that, if that is gripped by you and you are reborn and your father's heart is in here, you will not have to think about having it will happen on its own. Because you serve a compassionate Father, slow to anger and rich in love, compassion on all that He made. Nowhere in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation did anybody ever have compassion without acting. Compassion equals action. You cannot say, even weep when you hear it and do nothing. That's emotion. It's not compassion. Compassion is to make a hardcore decision. It's not good enough. I'm drawing a line at any cost. That is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. It's not about us. Our time is coming. The miracle took place in our hearts. We spend everything we have now in anticipation of the wedding feast coming. There's 20 million children, 20 million children. If we don't influence them, if we don't reach them, who's going to reach them? And our children, one day, will have to live for them. And we live in a global village. We dare not waste another day. We cannot. What will we say when our grandchildren sit with us one day and they question their faith and they say, well, okay, so tell me about Christianity. Grandpa, what did you do when there were 20 million orphans on your doorstep? Where was Jesus there? Grandpa, I want to understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. What can we say? It's about our Father. It's about our faith. You and I, white Africana, unqualified, I don't know who you are, but I promise you, if you say yes, God can do amazing things through you. 
play you a video. Just a few minutes, two and a half minutes, I think. As you watch it, I ask you to say this in your heart. Lord, I say yes. I want your way in my life. Watch this and hear the words of the song. There's a power in poverty that breaks principalities and brings the authorities down to There's a brewing frustration in the ageless temptation to fight for control by some manipulation. But the God of the kingdoms and God of the nations, the God of creation sends this revelation to the homeless and penniless, Jesus the Son. Poor will inherit the kingdom to come. Where will we turn when our world falls apart? And all of the treasures we've stored in our barns can't buy the kingdom of God. And who will we praise when we've praised all our lives? Men who build kingdoms and men who build fame. But heaven does not know their names. And what will we fear when all that remains? Is God on the throne with a child in his arms and love in his eyes? And the sound. Of you, Thank you for joining us. www.handsatwork.org